0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Alonzo Bowden. He's a regular panel member on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Alonzo Bowden has been making audiences around the world and the country laugh for more than 20 years.
1: Oh, come on, Leo. Stop reading that. (laughs) You know me. What are you doing reading a bio? Stop it. I,
0: you know, I it, listen, all right, let's put the bio away. I, I, I'm excited to have Alonzo Bowden on because uh, from the first time we met, I, I was and, and saw you performing. I was just like, this, this guy is thinking about things on a whole different level. And somehow the audience is right there with him along the way, I, I did a road trip from LA to New York uh, one summer when I just started comedy, like 2003 or, or four, and your, your album was one of the albums that helped me uh, get across the country. And I was like, man, I don't know who this guy is. Like I had I found it at like a, 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 a gas station. You know, gas stations had those, the albums. Yeah. And I just like grabbed a couple comedy albums. I was like, man, this guy is funny. And then when I finally met you, it just is funny in person. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast, Alonzo Bowden.
1: Well, thanks, man. Thanks. And I probably didn't see a dime from you buying my <laughs> CD at a gas station. That was, there was a whole thing with that. I don't know if you're aware of it. Um, they used to record comics at the improv and sell these cassette tapes. That's how long ago it was. They sold cassettes. And none of the comics got paid. Um, Bud Friedman got in a big lawsuit with them, but by the time they settled the lawsuit, like each comic got like twenty bucks, because you know it was so many comics over such a long period.
0: Wow, that that's that's painful to hear, and uh, and I'm but I'm so glad that now comics have a bit more control over the money they make the and the, the image that they're they're putting out. Uh, I mean, it, there's always going to be people that, that could take advantage of whatever the system is. But, um, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, that, that that sucks. And so I you being on a podcast today is timely because I did a show last night with Matt Ballaker. And I don't know if you know who that is, but he wrote a book about Greg Geraldo, who uh, is another comedian who I, I think you guys like started about the same time. And for the listeners who don't know, Greg Geraldo, uh, he had a, a law degree, very smart guy. I think he went to Brown University, uh, but struggled with addiction. And Alonzo, I know part of your backstory is, uh, you know, struggling with addiction, and then um, you know, working your way to, through sobriety. And I, and I remember one time you and I had a conversation and I asked you, how many meetings do you go to? And you said, I go to a meeting Every single day going back to Greg Geraldo, did you know him and were you surprised by
1: well? Are you um are you talking about the Matt from Portland? Um, he's a comic. Is that who wrote the book? I don't know.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a comedian. I don't know where he's from. He's tall, he's like six two,
1: six three or something. Yeah, like that. I think curly hair.
0: Uh not curly hair, maybe it's a maybe different he had, guy, maybe he but had anyway.
1: So getting back. So one, one thing, let me clarify. I went to meetings every day when I was newly sober, which was 33 years ago. Um, I, I'm probably average about a meeting a week now and I do it to probably more than anything to maintain perspective, to not forget, you know, what it was like. Um, but anyway, yeah, I knew Greg, I didn't know him well, cause he was a New York guy. I'm an LA guy, but, he fought for a long time in and out of sobriety and it, it listen, this this career this business i mean i was sober five years when i started doing comedy which definitely helped because this business is a lot of as you know it can be a lot of disappointments it can be a lot of highs and lows and There's no penalty for drug or alcohol use in this business. As long as you show up and you're funny and the system is making money off of you, they don't care. We've watched You know, Greg was tragic. I mean, you just go down the list. Chris Farley, um, you know, Belushi, um, Hedbert, Mitch Hedbert all these different, and then a bunch of comics we don't know. Recently, the the three in Santa Monica who did some cocaine and it happened to be laced with fentanyl and they died. You know, Um, we don't have drug testing, right? In our business. And the truth is nobody cares. You know, I happened to work with David Spade a couple of weeks after Farley died and i said to him i was like man i'm sorry about your friend i know you guys were tight and he said they wouldn't let him stop he said they wouldn't let him go to rehab he was the movies were making so much money they just kept shuffling him from movie to movie and everyone knew he was dying you know which is tragic but the machine doesn't give a shit about you you know so you gotta hope that that something else does yeah greg giraldo brilliant talent um I I can't speak to his state of mind because I didn't know him that well.
0: You talked about um, that. The the reason why you keep going to your meetings once a a week is because you don't want to forget and you want to keep perspective. What is it that you're not wanting to forget?
1: Well, I don't want to forget I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Um, I'm of the belief, and and different people have different beliefs. It's certainly not an exact science. So what I give you is my opinion and my experience. I believe once you're an addict, you're always an addict. Once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. That doesn't change. What I have seen happen, and um, I am blanking on the actor's name, guy kind of heavy, white hair, I think. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. So what happened to him, and has happened to a lot of people in long-term sobriety, you go back to using. Well, your your addiction and your mind wants the same amount that you stopped at. Your body can't take that anymore because your body doesn't have the resistance built in that it did when you were doing drugs every day. So it is very, unfortunately, very common for people who long-term sobriety to go back to drinking and using and die quickly, OD or whatever. Cause your body can't take that anymore. You know, I'm, I'm 59, I'm not 26. You know, um, I don't consume on a daily basis. I need to remember that that at the end of the day, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic. I need to remember that I've never had a beer because it was hot outside okay i didn't drink wine because it went well with my french plate at dinner no i drink and use for the effect that you know i want to for me personally it was a matter of um numbing feelings i didn't want to feel so i don't want to go back to that so i maintain perspective by going to meetings and there's also a thing in a 12-step community the best the best thing for your recovery is helping other people. So when I, when I go to meetings, if I get to talk to somebody who's newly sober or you know, going through a problem I went through, it helps me.
0: You talked about part of the reason, let's, let's go back to you know when he's talked about alcoholic and addiction, what type of addiction were we talking about and at what age did this all start?
1: Well, I believe, and again, my experience, that you're, you're born that way. I, I think people who are prone to addictions are born that way, and then you just find a substance that, that works. So started out smoking weed, drinking beer like kids do, at, you know, early teens, and progressed into cocaine. And ultimately, I mean, I was on the cocaine schedule of the 80s, doing powder, snorting cocaine in 1980 and 81 and whatever and finally uh bottoming out on crack in 1988 and that was the progression for a lot of us because that was the progression of the drug in the 80s
0: it's true that drugs do um you talk about the progression of drugs from cocaine to crack and and a lot of people who did cocaine would never of a million years think that they would go to crack this is people who are drinking beer, never think that they would go to wine and then some other heavier substance. But it, it's one thing is definitely going to lead to the next thing at some point because uh, the, the the times change, the people around you change, and uh, you know, and your situation changes. The to go from beer to crack, how how long was were we in the crack phase? And then what gave you the strength to pull out of there? Like, what were your steps uh, in terms of getting off all of that?
1: Okay, well, first, let me tell you, um, most people don't progress, okay? There are billions of people who drink alcohol, who don't become alcoholics. Um, There's, you know, millions of people who smoke weed, who never do a drug, anything other than that it it, that is a common misconception the the progression comes and this is why i say addicts and alcoholics are born that way the progression comes when you have whatever it is that makes you an addict or an alcoholic there's a lot you know so and the reason i say that is i never want to demonize drugs or alcohol i mean drugs are illegal right anything harder than weed is illegal so there's that risk but I never want to be one to judge others' behavior. Listen, if you can get high and leave it alone, if you get high on Saturday night and go to the club and then you're fine and you go to work Monday to Friday and take care of your kids or whatever, then fine, go ahead. I don't care, that's your life. I can only speak for what I do and what I can or can't do, right? Um, So that's where, that's my experience. What, my bottom, that's what you're asking about, was getting arrested i had been remarkably lucky when drinking and using and i never got arrested never never got caught and i did a lot of stupid i i remember smoking crack at lax in the bathroom at the airport you get caught doing that that's a major federal you know you're at an airport right so never got caught but when i did get arrested and and I had been to rehab once for a couple of weeks and didn't I was I wasn't interested in being there so I didn't get sober but when I um was alone in that jail cell you know I'll never forget how that felt and I never wanted to feel like that again because that's when I couldn't blame anybody there was no there's no bullshit you're alone with yourself and you're like this is this is what I've done this is where I got myself what you know what am i going to do and and it changed my attitude to wanting to get sober you know for people to get sober for people to give up um drugs alcohol whatever you have to want to you you can't do it for your for your wife or your husband you can't do it for the kids you can't do it For the job you can use one of those things and it might keep you going for a while but ultimately if you don't want it for you if something inside you doesn't click you just don't stay sober i i mean you you see it all the time people who did it for the job people who did it for whatever it it doesn't you it it's an internal thing some internal thing has to happen to make you want to get sober. And people, this is another thing, and this is one of the principles of the 12 steps mm. of one alcoholic talking to another, one addict talking to another, is people who don't have, have it don't understand it, not on the same level. And I, I, I put it akin to women who have been pregnant can talk to other women who have been pregnant but you can never explain it to someone who hasn't been pregnant.
0: Absolutely. And and I'm glad you cleared that up. The, you know, you talked about sitting alone in that cell and, you know, it's just you and now you have to face the thing you've been trying to avoid, which is yourself, right? You talked about using the drugs as a, a numbing agent to, to, to avoid feeling And now that you're in that cell, all you have are you and your feelings. What feelings were you trying to avoid with the drugs and alcohol?
1: All of them. All of them. Because they were, they can be very intense. And it can be, and not having, not knowing how to deal with them. See, see the thing about drugs and alcohol, right? They're a symptom they're not the problem, they're a symptom. The the problem is something else and you're using the drugs and alcohol to alleviate that something else, right? It's like if you have constant headaches, right, or migraine headaches, you can take Tylenol and that might ease the pain, but that doesn't do anything to the cause of the headaches. And when the Tylenol wears off, you're going to have another headache and you got to take the Tylenol again. So we're talking about treating it. I remember... When I um, was newly sober, there was this counselor, Joe Gomez, and Joe was great guy. This guy had done, I don't know how many years at San Quentin. He was an old, one-eyed Mexican criminal um, and had become this great drug and alcohol counselor because you knew he had been through whatever. And Joe used to say, hey, listen, you drink because you're an alcoholic. You take drugs because you're a drug addict and you fuck up cuz you're a fuck up. The first two are pretty easy to fix. That third one, that's going to take a while. And that's what it is, man. It it's some there are a lot of issues and different people have different issues, you know. Uh mine a lot of it has to do with my internal image of self. I don't see myself as other people see me. I see myself smaller and less than. Um dealing with depression, dealing with Things like that. Um being an overachiever to avoid reality. Uh think that so there's a lot of issues and a lot of feelings that I didn't want to feel or deal with.
0: Yeah, you know, in talking to Matt Balaker yesterday about Greg Geraldo, he said that Greg struggled with imposter syndrome. Did you uh struggle with that at all? Like feeling like you're gonna be found out not to be as funny or was it more along the lines of feelings of inadequacy and, uh, being less than
1: both, but the imposter syndrome is the best way I heard it described is I'm not as good as I want you to think I am. And I'm not as bad as I think I am. Okay. Um, can you say that one more time I'm not as good as I want you to think I am and I'm not as bad as I think I am you know the the thing about comedy right when people come to us and they're like man it's amazing what you do and you make people feel better and all and I know all that's true. We comics know all that's true. But there's a lot of times when that's not enough. For me, it's always about crafting something and trying to find the next level of funny. And I appreciate those other things, but they're not going to keep me going. You know, um, there was a telling moment, I think, with Greg Giraldo. He was doing one of those roasts, right? And I don't know who it was. And if you watch those roasts, Greg Giraldo, every time, was one of the greatest comics on there. Comics much more famous, much whatever, higher up the food chain, more money, whatever. Greg killed. And Jimmy Kimmel was the host, and he said, after Greg, he said, once again, Greg Giraldo kills and nothing will happen. And it's true, And, and it's like, for whatever reason, Right, Greg Giraldo. It didn't take. And you're you're sitting on the dais with people who are doing movies and TV shows and have millions of dollars. And Greg's doing okay. You know, there was another great comic who killed himself, Richard Jenny. Uh, Richard Jenny killed himself, and and I, you know, and I understand it. I get it. Richard Jenny was as funny as anyone in the biz. And Rich had a couple of shots. He had a sitcom that only lasted half a season he was in one big movie and nothing came of it. And he, you know, he, he just, you, you give up because your heart and soul, everything about you is in this comedy thing. And I know it's not supposed to be, and you have value beyond being a comic and stuff, but that's not what's going on in your head or in your heart. Comic is who we are. It's not a job. I don't go to work, come home and hang up my tool belt. You know, I used to do that. I used to work in the regular world. Comedy isn't like that. It's part of you. Any artistic creation is part of you. And that's not to make it better than people who work in an office or on an assembly line or you know or a plumber or or whatever. It's all your work and I, and I respect all of it. But when you have an artistic creative bent, you tend to feel and you're more connected to your work. You know, and and therefore you can be more dissatisfied, more satisfied. And and so the imposter syndrome of I don't deserve this, there are some things I get that are comically good. Comically good. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing Leo. I've met the Prime Minister of Canada. You know, I met Justin Trudeau. What the fuck am I doing talking to Justin Trudeau? I know multiple Grammy award-winning musicians. Um, you know, when you're, when I'm hanging out with George Duke and Marcus Miller, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? What am I doing here? That's the imposter syndrome. And others would look back and say, you're a comic, you're great, you belong there. Well, not in my head, but I've learned to not act on that. And that's where recovery comes in. You learn to not act on those thoughts or those feelings.
0: When you, you talked about, um, you know, you're sitting along, uh, you're in the jail cell and, and that's the moment where you go, I knew I want to get sober for me. Do you immediately jump into a 12 step program or was there, what was the next step? You get out of jail well, I and did. then what?
1: I did because I, like I said, I had been exposed to recovery. The first time I heard about 12-step program, I had never heard of them. I had no idea they existed. I didn't know anything about them. And remember, this was in the 80s. They weren't as popular or publicized as they are now. Rehab wasn't talked about as much as it is now. I always joke that I went to rehab before it was a thing. If I'd have gone to rehab after Last Comic Standing, it would have been a brilliant career move. I'd be much more famous right now, you know? Um, But, I went to a recovery program because I knew about it. And I knew that that would be the solution. And I think also the reason it worked again, because I wanted it to, so things, certain things fell into place. And I met people who I understood and they understood me, et cetera.
0: You know, a lot of, I'm in a 12-step program myself, not for alcohol, but for sugar. And a lot of the members um, will share that, you know, how they've been in and out of the program. Was that your experience or once you were in, you were in and never looked back?
1: I came in, I lasted for two weeks. I went back out. Then, Then after a month or two, when I got arrested, I came back in and I've been sober ever since.
0: Wow. That and so along with that 12 stuff, was there anything else outside of that that you did to aid in your, your recovery? or did you like, you know, get rid of friends, add friends, change your address? Like, or was no, it just the twelve um, steps? Other
1: than the fact your life changes naturally. So if if I'm not getting high anymore, then I'm not hanging out with people who get high. Um, or you know, so but it's not it just happens because you're not doing it. You 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 meet new friends, you start doing new things. So you leave some things in your in your old life behind. But that's just a, a natural progression. Um, for some people, it is a conscious thing. For some people, they're like, I can't see this person anymore. I can't go to this place anymore because it's a trigger or whatever. I know comics, right? who've gotten sober and they can't work for a while because they can't be around the alcohol or whatever because it's too it becomes too consuming as a temptation now there comes a time when you're fine with it you know but initially probably not a good idea to work in a place if you're an alcoholic probably not a good idea to work in a place that serves alcohol every night
0: Right. And, and so I would imagine because you talked about the thoughts of like feeling less than and like undeserving. Uh, and I imagine those thoughts don't leave us completely. How are you? What do you do when those thoughts, uh, you know, enter your mind now? I, I know you talked earlier about, you know, you don't listen
1: to it, but w- what does that look like? Do you, you, do you well, claim- you learn to. Um, for one thing, you learn to not act on it. How do you not act on it? You stay in the moment. You talk to someone else who feels that way, who you know feels that way, and they talk you through it. You know, here's the thing. You can have thoughts, you can have feelings, but ultimately it's your actions, right? So I can feel like I don't deserve this this shot, this show, or whatever it is. But in the moment, I got to get on stage and be funny. So I just do that and I stay in the moment. Um, That the power of now is a powerful thing. We project, this is gonna happen, that's gonna happen, this is gonna be terrible, that's gonna be great. Well, if you look back, and this isn't just for addicts and alcoholics, this is true for most people. If you look back at your projections in life, we're usually wrong. (laughs) We're usually wrong. So you, you, you talk to someone else who reminds you of that Who rem- and this is what i talk about about perspective someone else helps you understand that yeah well your mind might say that but you've been wrong every time up until now you know, you know what makes you think you're going to get it this time like what do they say insanity doing the same thing and expecting a different result right so even though your mind says this, your action changes, you do a different action and then you get a different result. So these are the kind of things. Let, there's times when I can be on stage and, and well, I'll tell you this, when I'm on stage, I'm in the moment and there's nothing. That's my perfect, that's why I love it on stage. That's why I'm so happy there. Um, I had a therapist tell me, she said, she happened to see me at this. I didn't even know she was going to be there. It was this fundraising thing I did, and she was there. And she said, "If I can get you to be that guy who you are on stage all the time, you would be fine and so is your therapist?
0: is that someone you're you're still uh, seeing now and And who was the guy on stage? like how, how did she break that down? I know you talked about you're very present on stage, But when I think about, who I am on stage and, and who most performers are on stage, like we're like a heightened version of ourselves. And that would seem exhausting to walk, walk around as a heightened version uh, of ourselves. Or is she alluding to something else?
1: She's alluding to something else. Yeah, we're a heightened version of some part of our personality on stage. But as a comic, when I'm on stage and it, a lot of musicians do this too, particularly jazz musicians. And maybe that's why comics, comedy and jazz go together so well. Totally in the moment, totally in the moment. I'm not thinking about anything when I'm on stage. One of the best pieces of advice I got when I started out, Tommy Davidson told me, he said, never think on stage. So never think on stage. Just be there. Um, music, Jazz musicians will tell you when they're in their improvisation or if you've ever seen two musicians playing together and it seems almost like they're having a conversation, right? Because they're totally in the moment. They're totally connected to what they're playing and what that other guy is playing as a comic at, at my best, I'm totally in the moment. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just being funny. I I call it the gift. People like, where does it come? I don't know where it comes from. I'm just inherently I've given this gift. And when I'm in the moment and talking, I can be funny. And that's why I'm great at verbal improv because I love it. I'm not thinking, I'm just saying whatever comes into my head. There's no judgment of it. There's no filter that says, oh, this is right, or this is wrong or whatever. It just, you're totally in the moment. So that's what she was talking about. Um, it's very seldom we live in the moment. You know, this year I got a dog. That's my big thing in 2020, he's laying. Right here next to me, sleeping. if you want to learn what it's like to live in the moment, get an animal. Animals, you know, when I was getting him, i was I had to go pick him up um, from a breeder out of town and bring him home. and I was really I was nervous, you know, I was worried. I didn't know I'd never had a dog like this before, anything like that. And I said, you know, I was talking to a friend, and I said, I'm worried and I'm nervous. She said, he's not worried at all. And it was like, that's right. He ain't worried a bit. You know, he's a puppy. And tomorrow I pick him up and and our life starts. So living in the moment is something I do on stage and living in the moment is something very hard to do. You talked about doing yoga today, right? That's one of the things with yoga. If, if you achieve that you know, heightened state or whatever, you're in the moment, right? You're not thinking about, I got to get to FedEx before three o'clock, or I got to go to, you know, to the bank today, or I got to work. You're just, you're right there. So that, that's what she was talking about on stage.
0: Yeah. You know what what I, when I think about being on stage or even doing yoga, part of what keeps, at least for myself in the moment is, it's 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 engaging, right? To 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 hold a hand plank, uh, and then bring your knee to your nose and and hold that for ten exhales. You have no other option but to be present because you're you're running out of breath. The arms are shaking, and you know it's the same thing when you're on stage. The stakes are high. Like everything is riding on you, and I and it, it just it what it ultimately brings to mind are relationships in terms of. Uh, being in a moment because a lot of times we're in a relationship and we have these things that we think about that we want to say but we don't say it and then ultimately it it leads into a breakup or infidelity or um, you know a binge as you shared earlier part of when you're struggling with emotions is you call someone else so if we don't share it if we don't express it then it, it it starts to eat us up and become self-defeating and then destroying the relationship with you and your significant other or you and the audience um if we're not in the moment and sharing what's on our mind so th- there's so many parallels here of the importance of being in a moment saying what's coming to your mind and I think a lot of us are afraid because you know we have some crazy thoughts and we're like are you sure because I was just thinking about you know, X, Y, and Z. And I'm sure nobody wants to hear that.
1: Well, I got to disagree. All, All right. right you go good? Yep. So what I was saying is when you talked about being under pressure on stage, I feel no pressure on stage. I'm totally at home on stage. I, um, People ask me, do you get scared? No, I, I, this is what I do. This is how I live. I may be, I may have a little apprehension at a place I've never worked before, but once I hit the stage, man, it's like a giant exhale for me. It's like, yeah, this is this is home. This is so, you know, yet pressured, you know, the, the other stuff can be pressure. Um, I don't know. Like I'm not good at paying bills and my business manager handles all of that. I don't negotiate. My agent does that. I get on stage. That's where I'm at home. The other stuff like i you know why i'm not famous leo because i've never worked on publicity it's never been my thing i don't have i don't have the image of myself to go out and tell people how great i am um i just want to do it and and with and i've never had and you know There are people who are great at marketing themselves, and some of them are better at marketing than they are at comedy, and some of them them are truly great at both. I watched guys do it. I watched Joe Coy, when he was a host at The Laugh Factory, handing out cards to everyone who walked out the door at the end of the show. And we were like, man, you know, um, it worked. It worked, And, and he built a name. He worked to build that name. Kevin Hart worked to build his name to what it is today. You know, we see the we see the result. Dane Cook, Dane's a, a cuz I was hanging out with Dane. We were working together a lot when he became Dane Cook. Dane Cook built a website that was interactive and spent hours online with his fans back when we thought the internet was only to watch porn. Okay? That was he put in that work and he made himself a name and and god bless all of them i have no you know i have no jealousy of them because this is work that i didn't do i could have learned and did it but i didn't do it because i'm not i don't know how to sit around and tell you that i'm great and and you got to do that in this business this business is is about self promotion right but when it comes to getting on stage now i do what i do None of that shit matters when you get on stage. Now, you know, and and with comics more so than anybody, more so than actors or musicians or whatever, it's what you do right now. You know, like I think it was Chris Rock or uh, Seinfeld, somebody, they said, you know, being famous gets you five minutes. That gets you the first five minutes. Minute six, is he funny? Is she funny? That's it. That's um, Michael Richards, Kramer. He wasn't a comic. He was an actor playing a comic. That's why he melted down because this ain't him. This ain't, this ain't the same. There's no bullshit. When you get on stage, you can, you, you can lie to yourself, but you know, I've been on stage with people who are worth $20 million and they're like, yeah, Alonzo, you're closing the show, you know? um, And it, because i love it that much i'm at home so no i don't feel the pressure when i'm on stage i don't feel the pressure that i feel in a relationship or in a financial situation or whatever else no man not when i'm on stage when i'm on stage that's my world that is my world
0: i love it and you know i've been on a road. i have been blessed to be on a road with you a few times and you know i know that you you work out it seems like you work out every single day is that part of your um, your grounding process, or you know, part of taking care of your physicality? Or, or have you always been somebody who worked out?
1: I've always worked out, and for a long time, you talk about feeling less than. I've been in great shape and felt like I'm fat and out of shape, and and had to keep going. Um, right now, I consider myself out of shape. People are like you look great, I'm like no, I don't. I'm forty pounds overweight, but. I've always worked out. It does help me. The physical does help me with the mental on some level. And I've always felt as long as it's easier to keep moving. Like once I stop moving, I won't be able to start again. So there are periods when I don't work out, you know, uh, but I don't want to ever completely stop. So it's just part. Yeah. It's part of my life exercise. Is part of my life. What's changing for me, you know, you were talking about the sugar thing. This is the first time in my life I have to start watching what I eat. And I don't know how to do that because I've never had to do that because, you know, I'm playing ball, working out, this or that. And I would just eat whatever I wanted. And the comic lifestyle is not a healthy lifestyle at all. But so so that's something that's a big change that I have to try to make and it's another change to commit to and i'll be the first to admit that i haven't committed to that as yet
0: yeah the food is is so challenging not just because um you know food tastes good but also there's a cultural aspect so it's like there's you know if you're not eating this or eating that then um at least for me i feel left out in some situations where uh everybody else is eating something i used to eat and i'm like ah you know, that's going to keep me up for two days or, uh, you know, emotionally dysregulate me. I know that also you're into, um, you know, motorcycles. What is it about, and and not just the bikes, you seem to be into the community. What is it about motorcycle riding and the community of of bike riders that you're drawn to?
1: Okay, well, there's a few things there. So, and by the way, what you talked about, about feeling left out when you don't eat something. One of the reasons that I don't have a problem with drugs and alcohol around people who use them is I've already done it. So when I see it, like you want to get high in the green room, like, are you kidding? That's not getting high. Have fun. You know, I I don't miss that shit. And people, I say it all the time. When people ask me about drugs and alcohol, I'm like, Oh, I'm retired. That's why I say I'm retired. I did it. I'm done. Um, So there's a few things with, with motorcycles, cars, and being a gearhead. For one thing, when I was a kid, I was seven years old. This guy took me on a ride on the back of a motorcycle. It still feels that way. There's something that happened that I just felt something like a freedom, whatever it is, I still get, I like mechanical things and, and I've been in and out of therapy for a long time. And a therapist pointed it. She said, you like mechanical things because you know how they work. You turn this, it does that. You push this, it does that. Life isn't like that, people aren't like that. So you like machines because you know how they work. And if a machine is broken, I know how to fix it. Change this part, now it works again. And she was like, humans aren't like that, which is why you don't relate to humans in the same way. When it comes to the community of motorcycle riders, just like other communities, people on the outside don't get it. Nobody who rides a motorcycle says, you know, how many motorcycles do you have? And then, oh, why do you have so many? You never hear that at a bike event. Every Our joke is, how many motorcycles do I need? One more than I have. That's that's how many I need. And we get that. And and. There's no way to explain it to people who don't get it, you know. Um, So. That's why I love the community, because they get it. They understand. We understand each other. We understand the spending the money. I have friends and we joke about it. We have the disease. We listen. We if I had the money I've spent on cars and motorcycles over the years, I would have another house. But I don't care. It's not like I'm like, man, I wasted all that money. There's maybe one or two I regret out of 30 cars. And I don't know how many motorcycles I've owned in my life. You know, as a friend, he was just joking with me the other day. He said, man, you're the only guy I know who bought a bike and traded it in two days later because you didn't like it. I was like, yep. Wasn't fun. Get rid of it. I don't think about, oh, man, you're going to lose this much money on the trip. Well, so what? You know, so ultimate. And, and again, I'm in a different position, right? I'm not supporting a family. So I have a lot of freedom when it comes to that. You know, when people talk about Jay Leno's collection, and I've been to Jay's garage a number of times, it's like, yeah, Jay has what any gearhead would have if we had his money. Right. That, you know, Jay's got the money. So, you, you know, it's. Um, It's a passion and it's understood by other people in the passion and people who aren't in it. You can't logically explain why this car costs that much money, why this bike costs that much money. There's no logic to it, but if you, you know, what they say, I think they said, you know, what is jazz? What they say, if I have to explain it, you wouldn't understand.
0: Yeah, the first time I heard Miles Davis kind of blue or Coltrane sentimental moods, I, you can't explain why why it makes you feel the way you do. You just it's a feeling. It's a it's a thing, and and sometimes words get in the way, you know. So I, I completely understand that. Um, you you talked about feeling free on the bike, and earlier, you know, you talked about how uh, there were emotions of less than in your childhood. Did you feel free in your childhood, or were those kind of thoughts about, you know, not being enough? Did that come from uh, what other people were saying to you, your parents, friends, uh, family members from your childhood?
1: I don't remember a lot of my childhood. My brother and I have talked about this. He seems to remember more about us growing up than I do. The only place I can say it comes from as far as growing up is we weren't rewarded for success. It was expected. So, you, you know, when you got an A, it wasn't this big deal. It was like, well, you're supposed to get an A. And then I was I was the last kid. Right. I joked that I wasn't the youngest. I was just the last kid. But through elementary and junior high school, I followed my brother and sister who got great grades. So I was expected to great, get great grades. Now, what I didn't find out until after high school and we talked about it or something, my grades were actually better than theirs. Um, I didn't know that. We never talked about it. I just knew it was expected. It was expected. So uh, so in some ways, I guess I didn't build that self-esteem. And that's why I said it was always about overachieving. The thing was, my my guiding principle was always, tell me what you need me to do so I can do it and you will leave me alone. Because ultimately, I wanted you to leave me alone.
0: uh, uh, Kobe Bryant comes to mind with that where he would just nod his head in meetings as Phil Jackson would would talk and then he'd be like all right I'm gonna go do do what I'm gonna do um Alonzo is there is there anything that we haven't talked about in terms of what's aided your recovery uh from addiction that you'd like to share for the listeners you talked about having a dog exercising having a community attending the meetings um you know Uh, yeah, but this
1: is the, I would say the biggest thing in recovery is finding out you're not the only one. That's the biggest thing. You're not the only one. I think once you find that out, and once you believe and accept that, then you, then you can believe the solution of other people. If you believe their problem was the same, then you can start to believe your solution is the same. Um, the other things, you know, physical exercise that's all part of it. You figure all of that out. If you get into recovery, you'll figure out what you need. You know, recovery is very individual. Um, there are broad principles and, and things, but they say working your program because you will develop what works for you. So that's, um, that's the, the thing. I, I think the biggest thing, yeah, finding out you're not the only one. Um, it's powerful. And then uh, what are you looking forward to, Alonzo Bowden? I don't know. I don't know. You know, the challenge that I was given recently, just this week, as a matter of fact, that I found very interesting and will be will be hard is to find my actual self. Finding your actual, allowing yourself to be your actual self. I've had a couple of encounters recently, where as a large black man, I'm, it's risky to exhibit anger in our society. It's very risky for a large black person to be angry. And it's very frustrating to have to absorb that anger. And somebody said, you know, you have to figure out your actual self deserves to be angry. You've been mistreated or the situation's unfair or whatever. And you have to figure out a way to do that because that's your actual self. So I don't know if looking forward to is the right way to put it, but it's a new thing that it's it's an idea and a concept I didn't wasn't aware of that now that I'm aware of, I have to think about and I have to try to honor my actual self in relationships. You know, if a relationship doesn't work and that can be a working relationship, a friendship uh, or a romantic relationship, be true, being true to my actual self, this doesn't work for this reason, right? Um, it's like in working, what do they say? What's the big thing? The power of no. When you get to where, no, I don't wanna do that gig. No, I can't do that. This isn't right for me. That's a powerful thing, and that's hard to do because that goes against the security of the paycheck that may be offered for that for that job. You know, a relationship with a person may not work and it has nothing to do with you or the other person being good or bad, right or wrong. It's just it it doesn't click. It doesn't work anymore. We've grown. We change whatever it might be. So being true to my actual self is my next challenge. It's powerful. And then plug all
0: your things. Where can people find you, reach out to you, see you perform?
1: Very simple. Um, AlonzoBoden.com is my website. I tell people, if you Google comic Alonzo, it's going to be either me or Christella. It's kind of easy to tell the difference. My voice is much deeper. So funny on Instagram. I'm always doing live stuff. I'm going to be in Arlington, Virginia, next weekend after Thanksgiving at the Arlington Draft House in December. I'm going to be at the Improv in Denver. I'm always at the Laugh Factory and the Improv in Hollywood every week when I'm home. So, you know, I'm out there working.
0: I love it. And then last question, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Alonzo Bowden?
1: Hmm, that's a tough one Um, because it's about not believing what's in your head. And in reality, it's about a day at a time I get, you know, for example, in recovery, the reason we say a day at a time is because 33 years ago, if you told me I can't drink or use a drug for 33 years, that would be absolutely impossible. But if you tell me, well, you can't get high today, it's like, okay, maybe I can just not get high today. Um, If someone's about to kill themselves, I would say, you know what? Do it tomorrow. Let's get through today. You can kill yourself tomorrow. Always put it off to tomorrow.
0: Thank you so much, Alonzo. Thank you so much, listeners. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the one 800 S-U-I-C-I-D-E or 1-800-273-TALKS or any of the other numbers for my listeners out there in Canada, the Philippines, France, UK, Australia, wherever you are in the world, um, there are international phone numbers. You can talk, chat, text. Uh, you could always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks a lot, Alonzo.
1: Okay, Leo, take Take care.